Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Air, starring Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Jason Bateman, Chris Tucker, and Viola Davis, written by Alex Convery and directed by Ben Affleck. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to do a small batch film review, uh, coupling in uh, some newer releases with our already uh, pretty planned out summer slate of films. We've got a fun cast that we're going to unveil uh, here in the coming weeks. Uh, summer box office hall of what uh or confusion maybe or disagreement (laughs) a little bit of everything in between and then pepper that in with some highly anticipated releases that i know we're dying to talk about but this kind of jumped out on our radar uh it's been uh got released i think in march uh of this year and has been floating around amazon prime now for a couple weeks uh this was your suggestion matt we're going to talk about air uh directed by mr ben affleck and I, I think this was, you know, a good, you know, addition, primarily because we're smack dab in the middle of the NBA finals right now. It seemed very appropriate to be in a basketball headspace. Um, mm-hmm. And right now you're uh, uh, recording from a distance, uh, but I'm missing you. Uh, so I'm having a little bit of a Basil Hayden's red wine cast finish without you. Hopefully you got well, something over there yourself. Nothing quite as exciting. I got an old K cup brewed Pacific bold coffee with a splash of Bailey's in there. Just have to make that work, I guess. Yeah, we're going to be at location for a little while. Sound, uh, my phone kind of screws up the sound a little bit, so nothing's wrong with me. It's just my voice is miles and miles away from the studio. There you go. There you go. Yeah, it, it, it will be, will be just fine, but yeah, I'm excited to talk about this with you specifically because, you know, you were got to kind of fully observe this particular era of basketball and shoe fanaticism that, you know, I kind of caught the tail end of that in the nineties. So I'm interested to get your, your, your take on this, but real quick before we jump in, I'm sure we're going to talk ball and sports. Just like what was the basketball landscape just briefly here in 83, 84. Yeah. It's dominated by the Lakers and the Celtics. Um, you know, there were on occasion some moments where there'd be a pretender that would show up. There was a time or two where Philadelphia gave Boston a bit of a moment. Uh, the last kind of out of, I don't want to say out of nowhere, but other than the two big dominant teams, uh, Lakers Celtics would be, you know, Dr. J's Sixers. Um, and they had some potential back then to challenge the Celtics. They had a kid on that team named Andrew Tony that, probably up until Steph Curry, Barkley, that was the best shooter that he ever saw. According mm-hmm. to Charles Barkley, mm-hmm. he watched Andrew Tony one day in practice hit 65 straight jumpers. Mm-hmm. They called him the Boston Strangler, but unfortunately Andrew Tony had a problem with his foot. But that lineup at one point was most alone, Andrew Tony, Maurice Cheeks, Charles Barkley, and Dr. J. Uh, it's a formidable five. Yeah, not bad. That was still relatively young, and I think could have given the Celtics a run, but the Celtics at that time were at the height of their powers. And then when you go to the Western Conference, mm-hmm. certainly the Magic and Kareem-led Lakers 
Showtime Lakers. Showtime Lakers revamping the NBA. But there were some moments in there where Denver and Dallas presented ah, formidable, slightly formidable opposition. Houston with the Twin Towers, Elijah Wan and Samson will get them. But like this yep. is a lot of anecdotal team stuff to get to the essential question that who dominated the NBA and it was those two guys. Now, the merchandising piece is sort of interesting prior to this film, but gets really interesting, obviously, after this film. And for all of the people out there that have never seen it, I'd like you to get on YouTube and look up the Converse Weapons Wrap. Mm -hmm. And that was a really good indication of what the shoe game looked like. So Converse dominated, not with Chuck Taylors. These are all leather-bound high tops that were actually not canvas, but leather. And they have this pretty snazzy little wrap uh, Converse shoe. That's Matt. Converse is a shoe that Magic do what he was born to do. And there's like this this um, I don't know collection of like six or seven guys. It's Mark Aguirre. It's Doctor. It's Mark Aguirre. It's um, Magic. It's Larry Bird. It's Bernard King, who unfortunately at the Knicks, I'm tragically kind of underrated with some of his injuries. Um, Kevin McHale's in there, and it's just <laughs> these guys kind of walking. Yeah. Kevin McHale, the sporty Kevin McHale. Yeah. I think there's someone else. Isaiah, did I say Isaiah? Yeah. Anyway, these guys, are just they, they have this wrap that they lay out, and they just kind of keep walking in front of each other in this you know, semi-grayly lit backdrop with this sort of kitschy little wrap that is the same shoe for all of those guys, just designed with the color mm-hmm. of the team that they played for. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of it. I mean, that, that was really it. We're not too... Mars Black one. We're certainly not to Mr. Robinson's neighborhood. We're not to yeah. Little Penny. We're not to any of that. We are dominated by Adidas and Converse, if you can believe the second of those two. I guess yeah. I get the Adidas too, but fucking Converse. Yeah, really? crazy. Like, yeah, yeah they, they throw up a percentage. Uh, we'll get into the movie here in just a second, but they throw up a percentage graphic at the beginning of this film, and it's like Converse 50% of the NBA market, Adidas. 29, 30%, and then Nike there at like 17, 16%. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I saw a graphic just talking about what you said about just the dominance of those two particular franchises in the 80s. I saw a graphic the other day that like kind of like laid out all the championships that have been won in the NBA. And it's like Lakers, Celtics, 17 and 16, uh, the Warriors at seven, the Bulls at six, Spurs at five. And then there's a couple teams at like three. I think the the Pistons are in there, uh, the the Heat, and then a couple like maybe two or three with two, a bunch with one, and then like a cadre of ones with zero. Right? Yep. And it's just crazy when you just step back and look at the NBA, and you know maybe this this year we'll get to see you know Denver notch one. Um, maybe they'll get in the the, the one column, right? But yeah, let's hope, right? It's just real. It's very top heavy uh, across the championship spectrum, probably more than any other. I don't know, maybe baseball a little bit, but um, maybe more than yeah. yeah, NFL or in some of these other franchises. It's very dominated by these two franchises, and this is their this is their heyday, right? Well, yeah, and this speaks to some of the problems that the NBA was facing. Like this is rather shocking to think about today, but. Lakers-Sixers, that final, which very famously 
you see that great poster of Dr. or that great image of Dr. J coming in and just jamming on Cooper's head. And Michael Cooper was my guy back when I was a little guy. So mm-hmm. don't really love to see that, but just Dr. J soaring in out of the stratosphere to throw one down. Jesse, those games are on tape delay. Yeah. They didn't even get a primetime slot. Crazy. What I'm telling you is yeah. as important as magic and bird are with not only their talent, but the rivalry mm-hmm. to get eyes on, you know, it pales in comparison to what Jordan's going to do. But if it's not for those two guys mm-hmm. and NBC or ABC or maybe it was even CBS, I think it was CBS because it was um, mm-hmm. CBS guys covering it back then. Pat O'Brien, I think, was CBS. I think it's CBS. Deciding to cover that era of basketball during primetime. Yeah. You know, we're toiling around with like WNBA, no offense, but WNBA levels of interest because. Yeah. The league was terrible. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. And this is what I think is remarkable about it. When you add in those two teams and the dominance that was, with the exception of a couple there by the Pistons in the 80s, and man, that might be it. it might be Lakers, Celtics, Pistons. That might be the only three in the 80s. I'd have to go back and look. I don't think the Rockets started to get theirs until the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. The Bulls didn't get theirs until the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, it speaks to how big that rivalry is. Because could you imagine the NFL today if there were, and it kind of is like this a little bit, two teams that basically dominated the sport. Mm-hmm. And right now we could sort of go, the Chiefs are looking like that, and prior to that, the Patriots. Mm-hmm. I think there's not a lot of interest. Yeah, um, yeah. It gets you know boring. I mean? It's, it's just this, like, well, this... I mean, if everybody's playing for third place, maybe yeah. we can make a wild card spot because we're not touching the Chiefs. Charger fans, Bronco fans. <laughs> uh, right? I mean, we're in there, I know. So... We, we have to be honest. <laughs> No, I, know Jesse, exactly. I can also tell you this, and I'd love to take you back because, mm-hmm. and this is going to be a little controversial for me to say, but I think for as talented as he is, mm-hmm. and it's remarkably such, Steph Curry's ruined the NBA in some, in some degree. Yeah. Because what it's done is it take an ISO ball at 35 feet is a reasonable shot, and if you can make it, man, bury it. But well, the way that was played in the 80s and 90s, yeah. Is it, you know, you got sassy after you knocked a J down. Yeah, smash it in your ass. Like smash mouth. Everybody had an enforcer. Yep. That was a role. Smash yeah. mouth basketball. And I kind of like that better. I mean, I'm not trying I to do too. promote people, get off my lawn, old man. But, and the way he plays is beautiful. The way Steph plays is beautiful. I'm not saying that. Yeah. You'll take uh, a little Steph Curry. I'll take a little, a bit of LeBron's ruin the NBA for me, just in the formation of superpowers, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's really not the same as it was with these teams just sticking it out with these franchises, like legendary athletes like Hakeem Olajuwon. Like, I'm just on the Rockets my entire career, and if we get there, yeah. great. If not, okay. And yeah, Can the, I ask you something about that? So these, these yeah. formations of like super teams and quote unquote the big three, because that was what yeah. the Apple allow you basically to mm-hmm. have. Are you okay with that if it's different through the draft? If you if you yes. can draft a big three, is that different than yeah, free agent acquisition? Big yeah, three I love when it's organic. Like uh, yeah. you know, and then if you get like a kind of like a B tier free agent here or there, yeah, I love that. It kind of what it's what's making Denver kind of pretty special, right? It, it, it was something that was yeah. kind of built over many years, not just yep. assembled overnight uh, with money. Yep. Yep. So I'm sure we'll talk about that. We'll talk ball, but hey, let's dive right into this film. Uh, let's get to our review breakdown of air. Come on, fellas. 
What about Lancaster Gordon? Anybody? <laughs> Louisville. Louisville. He went to Louisville, Bill. That is correct. I wrote it right there. How about, what do you think about Charles Barkley? The round mound or rebound? Could be a little bit of a reach for us at pick five. Clubhouse issues. Clubhouse issues? What does that mean? Trash talk. Nobody wants to see Barkley on TV. Does anybody hear me if I'm down in the valley singing the song of a man they call Terrence T-Bone Stansberry? I don't think they call him that. Well, we could if he wears Nikes. Think about it. What about this fella, Vern Fleming? Tough name, Good Jay. I like Melvin Turpin. Melvin Turpin. Thank you, Bill. On the board. What about John Stockton? Uh, he's scrappy, just like us. Gonzaga? Sure. What's that, a vocational school? What do you like about Melvin Turpin? Hmm? Mel Turpin. What do you like about his game? Go, Bill. He made the Final Four last year. Well, so did 40 other guys. He's the fifth, uh, sixth pick in the draft. Have you watched him play? Yeah. What, what do you like about his game? He's got great court sense. He's, uh, he's got good vision. He had 33 assists last season. I like his play. I like the, the okay, guy's right, good. Okay, no, no, it's all right. No, he's going to be a good flash. player. He's going to be a good player in Europe in four years when he's out of the league. Okay. No, you like Mel Turpin because he's a six pick in the draft. Nobody's going to give you shit for saying you like the six pick in the draft. Yeah, I'm just, okay. I'm some fucking asshole, Sonny. No. You're not an asshole. No, he's got great vision. Sonny's Bill. trying for it, though. Here we go. Anybody else? I got a shit. It's crazy. I just want to say, well, right. I could go through the names of that list, Jesse, and tell you exactly how right uh, Sonny Vaccaro is. It's easy hindsight's twenty twenty, but you know, Vern Fleming, yeah, Indiana Pacer, was a poor, 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 poor man. Mark Jackson before he got there. Okay. Uh, um, Mel Turpin was a poor man's Michael Cage. And I don't know if you know who Michael Cage was. Mm-hmm. He was um, a rebounding machine for the. Uh, on it. The two names that do come up in that, though, that they're sort of dismissed with, obviously Barkley, but Stockton. Yeah. You start to look at that draft and you say, man, that was kind of a loaded draft. It's yep. some, like top 10. Pretty good. two top 20 all-time guys. I mean, there's a couple of dogs in there, too. Yeah. Not unlike every year in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And Stansberry was one of the ones that was really interesting. Terrence Stansberry, T-Bone, made his name at the All-Star Weekend at the Slam Dunk Contest because he had pretty good springs. And pretty terrible everything else when it came to the game. But it's funny listening to those names. Oh, yeah. And trying to decide who the show pony is going to be for struggling yeah. <laughs> division of Nike. Um, that seems just <laughs> like ludicrous to say. That's funny that Nike's shoe basketball line was struggling. That's pretty funny, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to start here at the beginning. You know, we got our, our company logos and there's a couple things jumping out at me just kind of right from the get go. Amazon studios, mm-hmm. you know, here we got a streaming company kind of churning out a little bit more content, uh, I, in, within the last couple of years, I think this is their second or third film that is, you know, got a theatrical release, uh, and didn't just get dumped on a streaming platform. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's pretty significant. Uh, yeah. Skydance. Okay, that's interesting. And then another company that I thought was dead with the dinosaur bones, Mandalay Entertainment. Do you remember them, Matt? Yeah. Yeah. I saw that logo with the lion. And I was like, wait a minute. I was like, is this like 94? Like, what is this? 
Yeah, remember them? Yeah. And then, you know, we get this um, really interesting little montage here to kind of let people know, hey, it's 1984. I think we start in a pretty cool way with Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. I don't love everything Mm -hmm. that Dire Straits does, but this song used in this particular way with I Want My MTV. Yep. I think it's a tone setter. It's really good. Uh, we get this kind of smash footage, you know, everything from Reagan to Where's the Beef to Ghostbusters to Beverly Hills Cop to really set the mm-hmm. stage of what the world was like in 84. I think it's it's a pretty good way. And then that transitions to Sonny Vaccaro, played by Matt Damon, as he's kind of he's scouting uh, like some high school games, right? Yeah. And we're just kind of learning a little bit about him. So kind of learning that he's looking for talent has an eye for talent, also has an eye for gambling too, uh, mm-hmm. cleaning up. And I don't want to say it looks bored at his job, but almost looks powerless at his job. It's almost like Nike's admitted defeat instantly. Well, they're like, well, Converse is going to get the top guys. Uh, Michael Jordan's going to sign with Adidas. They're number two in town. And we're left with the scraps. We're going to put John yeah. Stockton up on a poster. I mean, great yeah. player. I mean, but I don't know if you're selling shoes with Stockton's face on them. No, uh, that's a really good point. And as Sonny Vaccaro is in an era pre-internet, the dinosaur process of hopping in your car and traveling long, long highways to the middle of God only knows where to go scout high school games. Uh, whether that's NBA talent scouts or whether that's Nike advertising talent scouts, it does harken back to a time when you really had to work the mines and tirelessly labor to find those guys. John Stockton at Gonzaga, Mm -hmm. that's one of those guys. No one gave a rip about Gonzaga in 1984. Who the hell's Gonzaga? Yeah. Now, Jordan's a different story (laughs) because UNC was on TV every day. Yeah. But um, and Barkley a little bit to, you know, the SEC and Auburn. So there's a little bit there. But, um, you know, once you start getting into the, the rest of the picks in that draft, like the Sam Bowie's from Kentucky and those guys, which, you know, everybody remember, Jordan went third in that draft. He didn't go first. He went third. Yeah. Uh, you get to how tirelessly Sonny Vaccaro has to work. But you know what's mentioned? I don't know if you have the sound later on or not, but there is a genius to him, and they do – bring up with a really key moment that's almost underplayed in the film. And that is the creation of this pre-draft tournament that Vaccaro devised to get all of these talented high school slash college players in the same location, mm-hmm. kind of like the pre-AAU, AAU circuit mm-hmm. at a place where he could just go and check out everybody. Yeah, Just mentioned in like one or two lines, um, so as you said, if Vaccaro is going to be our titular protagonist in the film, we can't just make him a genius cause that's too easy. We've got to give him some feet of clay and what better way to do it. Cause in fact, that's what he's going to do with Jordan and mm-hmm. this whole premise, right? Is make him struggle with gambling. You know what I really like about this, uh, story here is it's a movie that, could almost be completely devoid of conflict, right? I mean, there's not a lot of external conflict other than like a decision that needs to be made by Jordan at the end of the day. 
uh, there's a lot of internal conflict in this in this film. And then Michael Jordan's yeah. kind of like the MacGuffin of the movie, and it's kind of about him. But yeah. the, the screenplay, I'd never heard of this screenwriter before, uh, Alex Convery. I did do a little just reading on like how did they make how did they write this movie? And he was watching The Last Dance, uh, that uh, Jordan the mm-hmm. uh, ESPN documentary. And it kind of inspired him. And so he went back and kind of did some research on it. So this is like a four spec screenplay based on this idea. So I think there is, I think playing a little bit fast and loose with the, maybe some parts of the accuracy of it all. But I think entertainment wise, what he does is he's able to draw a lot of interesting conflicts between characters, between risk, between decision-making all well, Jordan's kind of this like void in the middle, and they don't even show him. And I think that's an interesting uh, directorial decision. Um, yeah. But what do you think of that? I mean, when you pitch, you know, someone like we're going to make a movie about how someone, you know, decided to go with this shoe company. It sounds like Bore City, but in mm-hmm. the way they do it, uh, and I think the sports genre can, you know, pull this off really well. Look at something like Moneyball. Um, you know, I think to a film like The Big Short that's, you know, about finances, they they find a way to do it in interesting ways that they, they bring the conflict to the forefront. want to know what you think uh, kind of about all that, just kind of the nature of the story. Those are two great examples. Moneyball and The Big Short are two great examples of, on paper, what seem to be rather boring stories that they deliver well. Um, has to do with the talent, certainly. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with making sure you can get the difficulty of the athletic process, if it's athletic, across in a way that makes the audience care. So let's take Moneyball, for example. Yeah. In both cases, Moneyball and Air, this film, the struggle is economic. Mm -hmm. So that's a timeless theme that you can use over and over in Moneyball. It's like the Oakland A's have no money. Mm Mm-hmm. We've just lost our best player. Um, how can we find a way to make this work? And so you get kind of what they call Brad Pitt's character in that film, right? Um, Billy. Uh, Billy Bean. Oh my, thank you, Billy Bean. Jesus. Who, by the way, I have his rookie baseball card, by the way. My baseball <laughs> really? Nice. For the Mets, yeah. I'll show you sometime. Anyway, Billy Bean's a card counter. Gambling, right? Yeah. Sonny Vaccaro. But we're not going to call him a card counter. We're just going to flat out make him a gambler. Because yeah. that's what you have to do. And I guess that gets to this big question, Jesse, and that's when we start with the protagonist down some path, one economic way to look at Joseph Campbell's quest is risk and reward. Mm-hmm. So if the risk is the inciting incident, then the reward would be crisis conflict resolution at the end of the movie. Yeah. The question you have to bring up then is, and this is sort of, I guess the challenge in any screenplay is the risk is taking that step over the imaginary line in the sand. That is the inciting incident that starts our hero on his journey worth what's on the other end. Mm-hmm. In this particular case here, I don't know if Carl had any idea what this brand of shoe was going to be going to do yeah. to the world. Yeah. In his particular case, it was like, I got to try to stay employed Yeah, and I got to keep this division of Nike afloat. Because Phil Knight's a prick. Yeah. <laughs> and I almost wonder if Ben Affleck is even acting by playing that role. We'll get to that later. <laughs> he just played himself. <laughs> and in the case of Moneyball with Brad Pitt, yeah. it's not 
taking sabermetrics and inside baseball, haha, pardon the pun, numbers to create a winning formula. It's trying to keep the A's in Oakland mm-hmm. because no one's going to go pay for a franchise that hadn't won since, you know, the Bash Brothers and before that, Reggie Jackson walked the hell out of town for the Yankees. Hey, I got I to gotta tell you when, uh, you know, when I play fantasy baseball, you know, when I get to the later rounds of the draft and I have no money to spend on players, I'm like, okay, I got to money ball this bitch. I was like, oh, uh, <laughs> I like, Yep. high on base percentage who gets on base and then that'll get me yep. runs that can potentially get me RBIs. But then my OBP uh, has a high percentage on base percentage. So uh, yeah, I'm, it <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you, well, you, you have to come up with a strategy when you're out of money and you're still got four or five rounds to go and you got to run out of roster. You got to find something. Literally. That's what money ball is about. Yeah. That's that, that would be a great film to talk about one of these days in another sports related cast, wow. but I would love that. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right on the economics of it all. And what I really like here, and I want to say this up front before I forget, but yeah. Matt Damon's really good in this movie. Uh, yeah, he sure is. And I haven't seen him this good. I don't want to go as far back as the Bourne films, but I might. I might. Mm-hmm. Uh I think he's got a really good performance here because it's kind of his story of just like, how is he going to convince these suits and these big wigs, big wigs that are cheapskates to pony up to spend the money? Uh, and they do it in a really interesting scene. You know, we talk about breaking down film. Uh, mm-hmm. What about this scene of him breaking down a play? Yeah. This is the 1982 championship, the shot that Jordan makes. I've seen this. Everyone's seen this. No, we've been looking at it wrong. Watch. Here's James Worthy, okay? Number one in his draft class, another guy we had no chance of signing. Correct. Why isn't he getting the ball? They're down by one. There's under a half a minute to go. Why isn't the superstar getting the ball? Why is the ball going to the 18-year-old skinny freshman from Wilmington, North Carolina? They probably drew up the play for Worthy, and Jordan was an option in case Worthy was covered. No, that's wrong. Worthy is a decoy. We've been looking at this wrong. Look, he knows he's not getting the ball. They're in a 1-3-1 zone. What's going to happen the second Worthy comes across the lane? That zone's going to collapse on him, leaving Michael Jordan open in the corner, and the ball's going to go to him, and he's going to shoot it. Look, when he shoots it, he shoots it right away. He knows he's getting the ball. The play is drawn up for Jordan. And now that you know that, Watch Jordan. You feel like your plane is on its final descent or are you just circling? Look at him. Look at how relaxed he is. Look, he wants the ball. He's calling for the ball. The whole world is watching him. He's 18 years old. He's three seconds away from the biggest shot of his life and the biggest shot of Dean Smith's life. Remember the knock on Dean Smith? He couldn't win the big one. He'd been there three times, couldn't get it done. This is his fourth and maybe his last time. Dean Smith didn't even start freshman. Michael's only the third freshman to start for the guy. And what does he do? He puts the ball in the hands of an 18-year-old freshman. Why? Because Dean sees the same thing that I see. The same thing that Linwood Robinson saw. Greatness. I think that's really well done. Uh analyzing that little clip, you know, this very grainy, you know, uh, championship footage and really pitting it in a way where 
he sees something beyond the veil of just a play of like, this is intentional. Dean Smith did this on purpose. You know, he sees what I see that he's the guy we should go after because he can transcend what this game could and maybe might look like in the future. What, what do you think of that? You know, Jason Bateman's just like, what, what are we doing here? Like, what's going on? Like, what are you pitching me? What did you think of this scene? Because this was, I think, the scene that kind of got me on board with, with the film. I was I was kind of going with it, and I'm like, okay, here, what's what's the world? What are the stakes? Obviously, we're going to be talking numbers and players and, and, and shoes, but, like, this was the scene that I was like, okay, I, I get it now. I get, like, the angle that they're going to take to tell this story. Yeah, the high school basketball piece of me, high school basketball coach of me loves this. Mm-hmm. I love that they decide to get into the breakdown of the play. Like the X's and O's, the strategy piece, but the yeah. strategy piece in a way that showcases and how well written, how smart mm-hmm. and observant Vaccaro is because the rest of the world that saw that play, everybody missed it. Yeah. Then you hearken back to the problems that Dean Smith had and, you know, the failed attempt after attempt after attempt to win a national championship and this guy getting him over the top. So in this one moment, that is just the talent scout essentially decoding this play, you get the landscape for North Carolina basketball, which is a huge piece Mm -hmm. in this story, right? It is. It's huge. Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan. James Worthy has mentioned is a nice nostalgia, a relevant recollection of the play and a great look into what makes Vaccaro tick and how his brain at this worked a little bit differently. And it it poses a question, I think, Jesse, Mm -hmm. and that's, is he in the wrong industry? I mean, we like it. He made us great shoes. Got this whole thing going. Yeah. How many teams passed on him? As a talent scout. Sure. I mean, hey. you draft Mel Turpin, maybe you draft Mel Turpin and Vern Fleming. Shoot, man, maybe Sonny Vaccaro should have been in your wheelhouse as the guy to help determine where you should go in the draft. Yeah. I mean, he'd be a good film producer. I mean, he has an eye for picking uh, picking out the, the, the diamonds in the rough. I mean, you know, I think, you know, Jordan yeah. has the talent and you know, when third pick in the draft, that's not really a diamond in a rough, but he sees beyond the no. the veil of that to yeah. be willing to pursue this any further. I, I just thought, I thought that was a great, a great scene. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. Damon's really good at how he's, he's breaking it down. So, so now we know, now we know what we want to do. We need to go after Jordan. We have 250 K minimum that we could offer him. And then yeah, we're, yeah, we're, right. we already kind of know the things that are kind of against, uh, going against uh the the teams right, right now is uh adidas is going to offer 250k we know michael prefers them he wears their shoes off the court um so where's the play going to be at and that's where we get these really interesting sequences you know after this he goes and visits uh george raveling uh yeah played by marlon waynes of, of all people <laughs> but yep. uh uh, he's trying to get just more insight, you know, raveling coach Jordan in the Olympic tournament, uh, trying to look for any kind of insight into courting him. He kind of convinces him that, you know, you know, you might need to go through the parents, specifically the mother, uh, if you want to have any shot at this. 
And then Raveling tells this crazy story. I have the clip for it, and then and then we got we got to talk about it. Take us down there. They throw us up on stage, right on the podium. There's cameras. One of the boosters has to be a clam member. I, you know. But this voice kept telling me I should stay, and I'm there five hours, and I'm just sweating like oh. Then I saw the last speaker's speech. We walked off stage. I said to him, I said, hey, that was the best speech I ever heard. He said, thank you, young man. He takes the speech, he folds it up, and he puts it in my pocket. Later, I'm looking for my favorite line. It's not in there. Then I notice the whole second half of the speech is completely different. What was the line you were looking for? I have a dream. Come on, get the fuck out of here. The I have a dream. You have that? Yeah. See, the first half, he noticed the audience wasn't with him. And he changed the whole thing, made the whole speech up right there on the spot. Wow. So are you saying I should contact the Jordans? Fuck no. <laughs> Just fucking said that. No, but that's your do. voice. Yeah. Your voice tells you to do stupid shit. My voice <laughs> made me a part of history. That's insane. That's a crazy story. Crazy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he just happened to be at this thing to see this man give a speech. I don't even know if he even knew who he was. And then, yeah, and I think the best piece of that is the improvised second half, the legendary second half of that particular speech kind of made up based on how he was seeing the audience. Yeah. Crazy. It's just, it just, just, just absurd. But I think it gives Sonny that like inspiration because he's still kind of on the fence a little bit about if I'm going to go all in, I need, I'm, I need, I'm, I need a little bit of insight. He gives him like, yeah, maybe go through the parents. I'm not telling you to do that, but I'm kind of telling you to do that. Yeah. And then when you hear, yeah, the, this, this, this moment in history here. Yeah. I think he kind of takes yeah. that in and, and runs with it. I, it just, it was just wild. I, there was a lot of interesting pieces of just factoid history thrown about in this film. A couple I had heard about, uh, I did know about Adidas's interesting upbringing uh, in Ger- in Germany, um, but then the, ju- mm-hmm. the the "just do it" slogan was the last uh, words of a serial killer who, before he was executed. Yeah, <laughs> insane. I didn't know that either. Yeah, just wild, just wild little anecdotes, kind of just peppered out uh, throughout this this little film here. Uh, but I want to ask you, let's talk about this now. Uh, let's talk about the Ben Affleck of it all. We've done a couple yeah. of films of his on this podcast, mainly his tenure as Batman. Uh, and it hasn't gone pretty well. We've been pretty hard on the guy. Uh, and, you know, he's not directing those films, but he's definitely involved with it. But here he's in the director's chair. He's got a, a big role uh, in the film as Phil Knight, uh, the CEO of, of Nike Incorporated. But what do we think of uh, Affleck's, you know, ability, you know, not only directing this film, uh, but directing other films? And I'll just say right up front, it might be his forte above acting. Yeah, I mean, think about Argo, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's easy to throw a bunch of crap on Ben Affleck and, and dog him for the misses. We can talk about Batman. We can talk about his personal life. We can talk about you know a guy that's made as many films as he has. There's certainly going to be some misses in there. But there's also 
I can't believe I'm about to say this. I think a genius to him. And I agree with you. It's not behind the camera, although I'm in front of the camera. Although I think that can be capably handled by him as well. Sure, yeah, depending on the project. He gets film. Like, I think Matt Damon is much, much and only suited to be in front of the camera. Dare I say, Jesse, that there is a quiet genius to a man who can be rather off-putting, and that's been a flex because the town is really, really good, and he directed that too. I think that's my favorite film that he's, he's directed. You know, there's a movie that he did, speaking of basketball, that wasn't this, called The Way Back, Mm -hmm. that is right after, I think, or maybe as he was going through um, alcohol rehabilitation, Mm -hmm. and he plays an alcoholic basketball coach. Yeah. Nobody saw that film except me, (laughs) and it was really good. Yeah. It was really good, and I think if you start to look at the sum of all of his work. It's a roller coaster. (laughs) <laughs> yeah they live by night and oh yeah that, uh, that, that and there's yeah that was they live by night was a miss and you know the batman stuff has mostly been a miss but in there i mean you got an argo you got goodwill yeah. hunting yeah. uh you know and then he has this kind of tenure with michael bay with armageddon and pearl harbor i mean it's just it's just an insane career but you know watching air the other day i and seeing, okay, he's in this film for a little bit. I mean, he's very distracting with his his wig. That's just like his M.O. of late because he was uber distracting in that last duel movie with his little blonde chin beard and his little Justin Timberlake uh, ramen noodle hair in that. Uh, but that wasn't even a terrible film either, right? No, 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 I mean, that, yes, was, I no was, that was that was kind of a decent film. No, that was yeah, that was it was it was it was pretty good. I'm just saying, just like yeah. these distracting yeah. like Ben Affleck looks that he has because he's like he's like shoeless for a lot of this film, and then he's got these shades yeah. on. He just stands out. But I was yeah, like, yeah, he's yeah. capable of, of delivering a story from A, B, C, D all the way across the finish line in an enjoyable yep. fashion. And I was like, his strength is directing. I think he understands how to get this done efficiently. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's not doing, he's not like, he's not like a, like a, like a Scorsese or like a De Palma that these guys have this very distinct style and look and feel of their films. Like I can't really tell you what makes a Ben Affleck film, but I'll tell you it's competent and it's deliverable and it's more times than not, very entertaining. And uh, I think that's a mark for success. What is your overall feeling, despite the rather glowing endorsement you just gave him now, Yeah. of Ben Affleck? Like, if I were to ask you this question 10 years ago, yeah. what do you think of Ben Affleck? What would you have said, and how much has it evolved in the last decade? I would say frustrating, because yeah. for every Argo in the town, I get a Gigli, uh yeah. and Daredevil and just a Jersey girl and just a whatever. Uh, yeah. So, like I said, it's a wild filmography. It ebbs and flows. And I think there's maybe more misses than hits in totality. But I think the hits are, you know, I think they, they stand up for themselves. I mean, we're talking about, I think, one of them again today. So... Yeah, I think it just I, and it, this seems like a just an interesting project for him to tackle. I, I never know Ben Affleck's point of view on basketball, or if that was ever an interest for him, that Patriots fan over there. But uh, 
yeah, I think he was suited for this. I just, I, I can't think of anyone else who might, might have done better. I think he just, he capably handles it. I think that's, I think that's a good endorsement for him. I think he's a blowhard. Yeah. And I think that he's had far too many love trysts to be kind of taken seriously at some point. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that he can put on the side of the ledger of the positive is loyal. Mm-hmm. If you go all the way back to Chasing Amy, right, yeah. which I think is just about his first film. Yeah. Well, his first film, I think, would through... be closer to uh, Dazed and Confused. Remember that? <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, you're right. So, yes. Okay. Close, close. Close. You know, those misses that you had through there, Geely, Jersey Girl, that's Kevin Smith stuff. And that's, mm-hmm. nobody was saving that, that version of Kevin Smith back then. Not even Jay and Silent Bob. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Dogma but, was the pits of all of that, right? There you go. I didn't think about Dogma, you're right. I, I think, this is so weird, I think he might be the quintessential Gen X actor, Jesse. Yeah. I mean, Ethan Hawke could probably give him a run for his money, and I think that that career probably in totality has more just yeah. successes. Yeah. But, but I don't think he has anything that shines as bright as, as Affleck's successes do. But I will give him credit, and I know, like, you know, Matt Damon's his buddy, and so he, he respects that. But I think he seems to be really comfortable with a certain group of people, mm-hmm. and even the ones that he's not comfortable with, I think he finds a way to make it work with them. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, in the town, he took Blake Lively, who I love, but has had a pretty mediocre career in film. Mm-hmm. And made her really good. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, if I was to ask myself that same question 10 years ago, I might have raised my brow and said, oh, I don't know. It's kind of, uh, I think now, I think I'm kind of like, well, if you can get the Batman stuff out of there and just sort of take it for what it is. Yeah. I think it's kind of impressive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sneakily yeah. impressive. Yeah. The most unassuming, underly impressive, impressive Oscar winner of all time. It's weird, right? I mean, don't, there is that. There's well, that. He won an Oscar Best Director. It's even, it's even weird to compare this film, which came out in March, Air, yeah. directed and has a role in, and then May, where he does this film, Hypnotic, with Robert Rodriguez, which is like this Inception knockoff film, and it's a colossal disaster. I think it made like two million its opening weekend, and there's you're not telling me that film didn't cost close to eighty million dollars. Yeah. Uh wild. It's a roller coaster. It's my best way to describe it. I mean, we'll get another, I think, great directorial effort, but then we're gonna have like another, you know, stinky turd in there too. It's just it's just yeah. so it's so strange. Um well good. I I wanted to wanna to talk about that because you know, we haven't really talked about him in that kind of creative space before, other than, you know what he's bringing to the Batman table, which wasn't, wasn't much for, for either of us. But well, the other thing too, I think him and Damon both, you can't, they're hard workers, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Those dudes are always working. So, yeah. I mean, if you want to use the Damon, Jimmy Stewart comparison, then I guess I'm fine with that. For all the great moments in Stewart's career, there's some stinkers in there too, because mm-hmm. he just always was working. And to Damon's success and failures, he's, from the Great Wall to yeah, Goodwill Hunting, yeah, oh, he's always working. Like 
the guy never turns down a script, which maybe we should get a few of our scripts in his hands. Yeah, anyway, I got. So. I, do you remember Project Project Greenlight? Yep. Yeah, they're a little. They're a little kind of like let's find some d- diamonds in the rough, kind of like Goodwill Hunting, and we'll turn their script into a movie. I thought that was a very interesting reality television show. Yeah. Uh, that turned out some interesting projects, and that was that was those two guys, right? So. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Now that you said that, I mean, Matt Damon's filmography is pretty wild too, because I would say, you know, yeah, acting wise, I think he's the more talented of the bunch because yeah. he's great in Goodwill Hunting, the uh, talented Mr. Ripley, obviously the Bourne stuff, the Oceans films. But then, yeah, you just rattled off the Great Wall in there. And then you have that stupid We Bought a Zoo, that Cameron Crowe disaster. Uh, he's got some stinkers in there too. But hey, I'm optimistic. Right. We're going to see him again this summer in Oppenheimer. So. Um, and he's going to kill it. He's going to kill it. Yeah. He'll, he'll be, he'll be great in that. Uh, yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty wild little filmography as well. So we, we have our play here. We have, okay. I got the motivation. I've been given an allowance, but I need to kind of break one of the rules. I need to go, uh, past the, the agent played by Chris Messina. Uh, they're going to have a really good moment here. I have the audio clip for it. It, it. I was in hysterics, uh, uh, with this particular scene, but he's going to go directly to the Jordan household and make his pitch, right? I mean, this is a film all about meetings and pitches. I mean, bore city, but in the way Affleck shoots it, the way the screenplay conveys it, it's highly entertaining. And we're introduced to uh, uh, Viola Davis as uh, Dolores Jordan, who's kind of running the the family business it seems like i mean everything's going through her it's not even going through dad he's just working on his car and i really like towards the end of the film the father's just like really tickled at like all the the videos and everything and all the and the, the mom's the hard sell right she wants the best for her for her boy um uh, yep. and yeah we get this we get we get the pitch here's what you should ask them mm-hmm. who's running your company I think four different people in that room are going to give you four different answers. And that's the problem at Adidas right now. And it's going to be a real headache for you for the next few years. What should I ask you? Ask me why I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. Why are you in Wilmington, North Carolina? Because I believe in your son. I believe he's different. And I believe you might be the only person on earth who knows it. That's why I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. All right, Mr. Picaro, thank you for coming. Thank you. And that was the pitch. That was that was, that was all he got. His pitch was to kind of go in with kind of like a, a way to talk down the other companies with what they know about the game and basketball, which was Converse. He's joining a lineup of legends. How is he going to stand out amongst that lineup of magic bird um, Irving? Uh, And then if you go to Adidas, you got a bunch of talking heads over there. None of them all have different ideals of how things should be run. How are you going to make sure your son's at the forefront of all their decision-making? You can't guarantee that. And he's not kind of almost kind of like presenting like the personal touch that Nike is going to be able to offer uh, Michael Jordan. Uh, what do you think? Do you think that was a good enough pitch? Would you have done it a little bit better? <laughs> well, I like that he doesn't try to do um, more for her than he does. 
mm-hmm. it, it's respectful. You know, I'm not going to come in here and blow a bunch of smoke up your ass and why you with these crazy claims of greatness. I'm going to tell you the truth. And but, Viola Davis doesn't play Mrs. Jordan as a hard ass, but I think they play her as pretty savvy. Mm-hmm. And she knows what's in front of her son. Mm-hmm. She wants the best for him with these businesses and this business to be done as he comes into the league. So the relationship that he has with her is what eventually wins the day, right? Yeah. Because it's not product. I mean, it, it is product a little bit later, but at this point it's not product. This, this gets them in the door of Nike to sit down at the table. Yeah, even take a meeting with us, right? Because there's, I mean, even that is a win. But what I love about this, we didn't spend much time talking about, maybe because we're doing it now, is that he goes around the agent, because that agent's a fucker. (laughs) And and the question I think that I wish they'd posed is, if you're bringing me Mel Turpin and Vern Fleming and all these other guys, what the hell do I have to lose? Mm -hmm. I mean, he tells him initially, you're not getting Michael Jordan. Yeah. He's not even going to sit down with you. I mean, he doesn't even, and agents, and we know this, Jesse, agents are pricks. Yeah. Those guys are pricks. Ruthless. I love that yeah. he just middle fingers and like, fuck you, I'm going to go around you. Mm-hmm. And good, yeah, fuck him, go around him. Because if he is never able to get a get anything other than an answer of no from a person who's unwilling to give you a yes, then go around him. Yeah. What rule book is there? Yeah. It says you have to go through the agents and that's what I like. It's a risk, but I think it's one of the safer risks that he made because he doesn't have Jordan. Now, if he doesn't get Jordan, it'll look like what it looks like. And all he's getting is D list talent from this Chris Messina's. I forget what the agent's name is anyway. Falk. So who cares? Yeah. David Falk. Yeah. So who cares? Yeah. I love that. He just says, I'm going to do it. I'm yeah. going to do it. Yeah, and then he gets this. Uh, yeah, th- this great scene. This is this is the blowback, though. This is he did it, and now there's reputations and consequences. Yep. Because now, after what you did, unless you make some fucking miracle dream deal with the Jordans, unless you stop making that fucking air soul and start making the entire company air fucking Michael Jordan, I'll bury you alive and light you on fire and dance and piss on your grave and fuck the eye hole of your skull. You're right, I don't want to be your therapist. You want to fuck with me? You fucking herpes simplex too, motherfucker! You know, the fact that you know there's a second simplex of herpes makes me think that you might have it, David. Of course I do! Everyone has herpes! (laughs) You know why you don't, Sonny? Because no one will fuck you. No one. I never looked at it that way. You know what? I'm a fucking monster, okay? My lawyers are on six-figure retainers. I will break you in half. I will take your balls and nibble on them. I will chew your fucking nutsack. Do you hear me? I will fucking take your nuts and fucking eat them. I will eat your fucking nuts. I will, I, you know what? I'm sick of your shit. You know what? I, what? 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 You think it's funny? You think it's funny? You think it's funny? David, come on, okay? We're on a telephone 3,000 miles apart. We're two out-of-shape middle-aged guys. This is a little ridiculous. I'm not out of shape. I'm in great shape. I'm in great shape. When's the last time you saw me? I'm in fucking great shape. I believe you, baby. Unless you make an offer to Michael and close him. I will personally assure that no client of this agency ever signs a contract with Nike. And Nike will be out of the basketball business permanently. And so will you. What if we do make the deal? 
You and I will be best friends. Amidst all that chaos, that banter, that just that great back and forth there, and he's just really feeding it to him. And I love the whole the, the whole herpes line. And then I'm in. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I'm in great shape. Oh, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. Yeah. Uh, there is some consequence here that if you do this and don't sign, I'll make sure that no clients at my prestigious agency never sign with Nike. That's a huge uh, risk. Uh, yep. And you're out of the basketball game. You will be the running shoe with Bruce Jenner as your spokesperson, right? Uh, right. There is, I think, some some consequence here. The agent's laying it on the line for him. I mean, he's giving it to him hard here, but uh, I think this is where the risk is starting to settle in. And Jason Bateman's going to give the best one here in just a few minutes. Uh, yeah, what, what, do, what do you think of that? I mean, that that's I, to me, that's where the conflict's coming from. I mean, we're not, like, having these, like, boardroom scenes aren't getting like the conflict, but it's coming from these moments of you're going after it. This is how you're going to pay the price. Yeah. If you fail. Well, you know what he throws at him is, and I'll bury the basketball division of Nike. Mm -hmm. Jesse, they admit that it's buried anyway. Yeah. This is a, a one way track to Palookaville. There's nothing happening there. Does, does Vaccaro know that? And that's his ace in the hole. Like, why threaten a man who has nothing to lose? Sure. Because it's already lost. But if that's the case, and that piece of strategy was one that Vaccaro actually tried to weaponize and leverage, then, and in my mind, it suggests because the guy is playing chess on a different level compared to everyone else in this film. Yeah. It also shows what blood-sucking leeches these agents are. Like, you're going to eat someone's nuts and screw their eye hole and all this other nonsense. <laughs> yeah. But if you sign Jordan, we're going to be best friends. Like, that guy is so hateable. Sure, yeah. Hateable. And I love that Vicaro gets over on him, and I also love that he just ends up laughing at him. Like, you're such a clown. You're such a clown. What I like that he tells him, too, is like, like and if I do sign, like, what does that mean for us? He's like, then we'll be best friends, right? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> then we'll be good. But if you screw this all up and make a mess of it all, then yeah, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy your reputation. You're buried. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, just, just, yeah, pretty well done. Let's talk about this real quick and then we'll get into the design of the shoe. Uh, and then the, just the later part of this film, but we got to talk about Michael Jordan, the MacGuffin of the film. Uh, yeah. It's all about him and he's just in shadow. I mean, he's there, but he's not really there. It's all about his key decision that needs to be made at the end of the day. But I think we got to talk a little bit about the guy, the athlete, the impact he had on basketball because you're you're a San Antonio Spurs fan, diehard. I'm a Los Angeles Lakers fan, but I don't think there's any denying that we couldn't not miss Michael Jordan playing basketball, right? I mean, it was like must-see television. Sure. Yeah. The, the run they had in the 90s, I mean, it wasn't our teams involved. I mean, we were probably just, you know, the 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 shredlings at the end of that. But it was it was remarkable. I think it it, it helped uh, propel and popularize. And as the numbers are going to elicit at the end of this film of what this shoe's going to do, it became a brand. He became a name. He became the face of the league. It's really a snapshot into one of the great sports icons of all time. 
Yeah. But what was that like? What was that like in around like 84, 85? Um, needing a face, it needed a face. Yeah. Magic was great. Bird was great. That was almost a package deal. And, and they were both great on TV in their own different ways. Mm-hmm. So Magic was so shiny and flashy. Yeah. And Bird was so solemn and um, almost self-deprecating to a certain extent. Yeah. I think the NBA, and at that point, David Stern, mm-hmm. ugh, whatever, David Stern. <laughs> oh, Sony, oh, Sonny Vaccaro more than they can ever possibly repay him. Sure. The league was going to thrive. And like I said, you know, they got it off tape delay and got it into a prime time slot. And there wasn't any shortage of interest in the league at that time. Mm-hmm. They caught lightning in a bottle. Magic and Bird both come out of college the same year and immediately rivalry like goes all the way back to the finals at Indiana state and Michigan, yeah. Michigan state. Sorry. Yeah. Like it, it's tailor made. Like God blessed this league in a way that I don't know if any other professional sports league. And I, I should say American cause I can't speak to like soccer mm-hmm. or football um, has ever had the same grace bestowed upon them. And that carries it. Jesse, that's like the five to seven year great run. Yeah. And then, by the time Jordan shows up and gets his feet underneath him in these rebellious, again, middle fingering the establishment, there's not enough white on there. We're going to pay the fine. Fine. We'll pay the fine. I thought that Nike was, he will pay the fine. I thought that was incredible. Right. Right. He's got this young upstart jump out of the gym. stud that is flashy and shiny. Why not give him a little piece of rebellion on his shoes? Mm-hmm. And you start to create, dare I say, a black market feeling to it. Mm -hmm. And so where Bird and Magic stop, which essentially is the rivalry between them. Yeah. Michael Jordan picks up that baton and takes that 200 Olympic world record time Mm -hmm. and turns it into a 100-meter sprint that sets a world record year after year after year after year running a relay by himself, honestly. And it's, no one else is touchable. It's the shoes. It's it's his endorsements with McDonald's and Gatorade. I mean, he's everywhere. And I think, you know, the moment for a lot of people, I think it's that dunk contest that he won his his rookie year, which was the the half-court dunk, right? I mean, it's just an iconic sports image, but they're like, wait a minute, this guy's... Guy's jumping from the half court thing. He's doing these crazy dunks. He's got such finesse as a shooter. I mean, their team, the Chicago Bulls, aren't very good, but it's really fun to watch what he can do. Yeah. And then once they piece that together with the right coaching, the right supporting cast, uh, uh, you know, Jordan said on many occasions, he's like, without Scottie Pippen, you know, I'm not winning. I'm not winning anything. I need, you know, I needed my, I needed that guy, right? Uh, Batman needed Robin. Yeah. It's. I think it's just such a, and you know, like, like we said, like, you know, watching Jordan, the, those finals runs, especially there towards the end against like the jazz and the supersonics. Uh, you know, I was a fan. Yeah. I, I had my own Michael Jordan. I, I loved the Lakers, but I liked Michael Jordan. I had this really cool uh, Jordan Jersey and it was reversible. So it was red, mm-hmm. red on one side. And then when you flipped it inside out, it was black with red letters. Sweet. It was, it was, Pretty sweet, actually. Dope, yeah. Uh, yep. But I don't think you could help but not be a fan. And I don't know if sports since his particular moment 
has really had that face, right? Or that like interest in in watching. Um, I think yeah. I think across I think, all, I, think a, I think across all sports that includes football, MLB, uh, just everything. Uh, we're like we're watching for this guy. I'm not a Bulls fan, but I'm watching because I'm into it. And I think yeah. that um, yeah, good. Think about what that spawns, Jesse. So after we finish with the launch of Michael Jordan, and again, hearkening back to a different time, there's a brilliant Nike commercial that is him doing the rockabye dunk mm-hmm. against a white, smoky backdrop in slow motion that everybody's got to tune in. That, that commercial yeah. itself not only made me want to be the greatest basketball player Jesus and high tops that the world had ever seen, which I think a lot of people were inspired by Jordan to do, but that, that commercial started an interest in me in media Yeah, because I'd never seen anything that was like, if you think about dunking the basketball, right? Yeah. That's a really violent gross motor movement. When you can tweak it with fine pieces like rocking it, Mm -hmm. pumping it between your legs, taking off from the free throw line and double pumping it, adding these little fine pieces into this really big, gross motor, violent attack, mm-hmm. and then score it the way they did. I had never seen anything that remotely resembled that kind of beauty and athletics. There were great moments, great moments, you know, Miracle on Ice, like great yeah. memorable moments, but taking yeah. sport and making it look that artistic and I think Michael had the way of doing that, mm-hmm. that, and all of the things that we talk about with him go, in my opinion, go, that doesn't get spoken about enough. Sure. Yeah. If the basketball court was the canvas, his, his physical athletic talent yeah. was the palette and the way he could manipulate it was the brush and the paint on it. He mm-hmm. was, truly an artist. And so what that, that commercial and that, that line, it, it, you know, whose career it helped launch. Yeah. Spike Lee. Yeah. Cause Spike Lee's Mars Blackman. Mm-hmm. And then from the Spurs point of view, they created a whole other marketing campaign around Mr. Robinson's neighborhood. Yeah. And David Robinson was just as beautiful in his own way as Michael was until he hurt himself and hit his back. But David Robinson, as much as everybody loved Michael and I loved him too. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with the Spurs because of Terry Cummings. That's a story for another day. If everybody, anybody wants to hear, we'll tell them. The <laughs> yeah, there you but go. Introduction to the San Antonio Spurs because Terry Cummings is a guy from DePaul that I like. He got traded from the Bucks. Blah 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 blah. And here comes this seven foot two, run like the wind, beautiful specimen of a man. Yes, I said that. With shoulders that made me want to get in the weight room. That ran and jumped and dunked, and then they made this whole series with him with Larry Brown of all people busting his ass telling him to run up and down the court and Mr. Robinson's neighborhood. And like they, they tried to market him the same way they did Michael, but David didn't have the panache and flair. They, they had a nice two or three year run and you know, he had his own, his own nice little deal too. But Michael spawned so many different wannabes in different ways. Yeah. Even if like wherever you are on the Jordan, LeBron, Kobe, mm-hmm. Insert whoever's coming in, you know, Victor Wimbanyama, pray to God, please let that work out first. Yeah. Um, who's coming? Like, he's coming. It, it, that's coming. Yeah. 
And, and by the way, I don't know if you saw the highlight. Did you see the video of him in warm-ups going off the backboard between the legs, reversing it, and, and the layup line? <laughs> I will send it to you. All right. Buckle up, NBA. Um, that's a lot of Spurs bias there for you. No, that's okay. That. I'll accept it. But he he created multiple shoe lines, mm-hmm. multiple commercials, yeah, multiple gear lines. Feature marketing campaign. Feature and, and, and on, space you know, yeah. space and jam. And wiped out Converse. He killed Converse. Yeah, Jesse. yeah. They were dead. Yeah, he killed them. Yeah. And th- think of his career too. I mean, here he has you know all these great rookie records, dunking. Mm-hmm. Finally gets the you know the championship. They win three in a row, and he's just like, "I'm good. Um, I'm gonna call it quits. I'm gonna go yeah. play basketball or baseball." It doesn't really work out the way he envisioned. His dad's murdered on the side of the road. Michael gets yeah. emblazoned in like affair scandals. Not a clean cut guy and going through his share of tragedies. And he's like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to win three more in a row. That's absurd. It's absurd. Yep. And that's when I started watching the NBA and I was kind of following and picking up on that. And I was like, this is wild. I mean, NBA in the nineties into the early two thousands was so watchable. It was my favorite sport to watch. Well, Jesse, think about during that run (laughs) who he took down. Yeah. Barkley and the sun, Barkley, Kevin Johnson, Dan Marley and the sun. And then Stockton and Malone again. It's interesting yeah. that the other, I think, most notable names mentioned in that same draft class for possible advertising mm-hmm. are Stockton and Barkley. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to the early days, you know, the Portland and um, Seattle bit. Yeah. Okay, so he takes them to Portland and the Lakers. So Portland, Seattle, and the Lakers. Yeah. And then comes back and takes down – the Suns. Oh no! It was it was you know, it was it was it was Lakers, Blazers, Suns retirement, and then when he came back, it was Sonics, Sonics, Jazz, 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 Jazz. Yeah, right. So take down Gary Payton and Sean Kemp, yeah. Carl Malone, John yeah. Stockton, Charles Barkley, Dan Marley, Richard Dumas, Magic, and what's left of the Lakers, Clyde, Drex- and Clyde, Clyde Drexler. Yeah, Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter and Jerome Kersey. Like he is slaying dragon after dragon after dragon. And in the process of doing that is just stapling himself on the mantle of greatness in every year. And think about this in every year, mm-hmm. a different version of badass new shoes to yeah. Nike's credit. Yeah. Let's keep the soul the same because this Nike, this air concept, which also is not mentioned. Yeah. They come up with the air pocket, which is a brand new idea. It's not just cushion. Yeah. It's the air cushion. Well, fuck that's, that's why it's called air. Really? Mm-hmm. And then every year, there's a new version of Nike that they come out, and almost every year, other than the double against the against the Jazz, he takes down another, you know, King Ghidorah or <laughs> yeah. Mothra. Yeah, he, he's fucking Godzilla, man. He's Godzilla and high top. Yeah, yeah. What was the stat at the end of the film, which was he's still pulling in like two hundred or three hundred million annually from shoe sales alone? Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. <laughs> it's just crazy. Uh, my final question, and we'll get back into the film here. Did you ever have a pair of Air Jordans? Sadly, I never, ever had a pair of Air Jordans. I was not, like, I had plenty of basketball shoes, Mm -hmm. but I was not one that, you know, um, pinched my uh, Bugle Boys and rolled them up and wore the high. That that was not my look. Um, I was a Vans guy, and, um, yeah, some flip-flops and some, I know, no. Yeah. But, 
I'm at a point now where kind of debating and not just because of the film, just because, you know, I've never had a pair of Jordans and they like, I'd still kind of kicking the tires on it. You, do you ever have one? No, I just, you know, growing up, I mean, they were pretty expensive. I remember that. I mean, they were a hundred plus dollars. Yeah. And when I started playing like YMCA ball, I mean, like it was like some kids had Jordans and, uh, I, 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 we didn't even have, you know, the money to like, to get me the Pippins. I, I, I did have a pretty sweet pair of Rodman's. <laughs> Oh, cool, and they were they were Converse, uh, so Converse got Dennis Rodman, but th- 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 that that was what I had to play with there. But yeah. yeah, I'm not I'm not a big Nike shoe guy. I mean, personally, not today. I'm like I'm all about the Vans. I love the Vans slip on checkerboard, Van high tops, yeah. and then I'm a Puma guy. Like uh, there's uh, when it comes to athletics and like going to the gym, like give me a sweet pair of Pumas. Like that's my shoe of choice. I kind of tend to lean these days on the Adidas side. Okay. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean, preferences in that. You know, I think the other notable moment in the high-top wars that went along with these guys happened during the dunk contest. You know about the peekaboo dunk, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So D. Brown pumped up his shoes before he throws down the peekaboo dunk, which is tucking his, his eyes behind his arm and, Somehow, by the grace of God, zero and that thing in and get it, get it put in the hole, yeah. which that's an amazing dunk. Mm-hmm. That was about the only other brief moment where people are like, oh, that was so dope. I think I'm going to try a different pair of high tops until Michael showed back up and smoked whoever it was in the finals again and came out with a better design. And mm-hmm. um, I will say this. I can't speak to Of all of the shoe designs, that third Jordan 3, whatever, the Air 3, that's my favorite one. Okay white with like that i think it's three that sort of asphalt kind of look at around the bottom of the sole um mm-hmm. with the t- those those are badass those the first ones are cool the yeah. red and black ones are cool but that third one was my favorite one yeah we're at the point in the film now too where okay we might get a meeting with jordan yeah. but let's give him a product that we can pitch to him so they go to yeah. this guy peter moore who's in the basement of the Nike Dungeon, who his job is to just design <laughs> and yeah, design and make shoes, uh, and he puts together a pretty good looking shoe. Like it's it's red, and then I think Bateman's the one that has the idea of like, what if we put more red in it? And there's this crazy, stupid NBA rule. I don't even know why this was a thing, which was mm-hmm. they have to be fifty percent white or yep. more percentage white uh, and whatever color else they want. Otherwise, they get fined. And Nike has this point of view of, hey, make it more red with a little white, add some black in there, and hell, we'll pay the fines for the player, and he gets to wear what he wants. I thought that was cool. I thought that was a really cool thing to do. And I think like a point up on Team Nike, right? Yeah. Uh, but Let me now, ask you a question, Jesse. Let yeah. me ask you a question. Go ahead. Certainly the Bulls are happy that Jordan falls to them at three and, and you know, it fit. Yeah. But... Color-wise, let's say he goes to, like, the Sonic, and it's whatever beat colors the Sonics have, like white and green. Green and orange? Yellow? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't particularly love the Knicks colors, and I don't I don't understand why, whether it's the Mets, the Islanders, or the Knicks, there's an insistence on blue and orange, but okay <laughs> for whatever that is. Yeah. So the Knicks are such a basketball powerhouse. That's maybe not the best example. But... If he falls to a team that doesn't have colors that work as well as the Bulls, like 
dude, red and black go like yeah. red and black are bad. Mm-hmm. With the little, with the little white splash in there. Absolutely. Yeah. Dude, is this, I don't want to say it's a different story, but man, I don't know. There's a lot of years that I hated the Celtics uniforms, mostly because I hated the Celtics back then as, yeah. a, as a first Laker fan, but, and they're better now with the black and green sort of, you know, deal. But that's also kind of lucky too. Red and black play, man. There's colors that don't play as well. Well, so yeah, well I'm telling you, if he, if he ends up on '80s Mavericks with like emerald, <laughs> gr- emerald green, green and royal blue, blue, dude, that's a puke shoe right there. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. Yes. I don't know exactly. though if he do, if he does end up on the Lakers, you know, a, a, a yellow and purple shoe with some white in it, and that might be pretty sharp. But I don't, you don't need to make those '80s Lakers better than they already are. Yeah, but not the sun, purple and orange. Yeah, yeah, that hard would... path there too. Yeah, Ooh, yeah, the, yeah. Like the Joker. I th- <laughs> yeah, there's some, there's some combos out there that just yeah just wouldn't work uh, whatsoever. That is funny, dude. You, you bringing up the Mavericks? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 80s Mavericks. Let's go with the emerald green yeah. and blue. <laughs> what? Yeah, there's some pretty atrocious uniforms. Yeah. Uh, you know that's a good that's a good question here, but. So they're designing the shoe. They're getting ready for the the pitch meeting. And uh, the Jordan family, they're going to Converse and Adidas, and they're getting their pitches. And it's kind of playing out the way Sonny said it, which was he's not going to stand out over here. We know next to nothing about his game other than he was the third pick in the draft. And at Adidas, yeah, we have this cadre of all these German people in charge. No one's really in charge. There's like 10 people in charge. It's a mess over here. Maybe Nike's the key. And then we get this great scene. It might be my favorite scene of the film, but it really helped elicit the underlying conflict of the entire film for me. Uh, Hang on a second. Let me make sure I play the right clip. Here we go. The judge in the divorce, uh, she just gave me Sundays. You know, you get to be a, a dad for four hours every Sunday at the park. It's the only time I see Avery. Yeah, I know. She's getting so she's not used to me. Uh, but she's so she's seven, and um, and I I started bringing her free Nikes every Sunday, and you know it's it's the thing that she looks forward to about seeing me. You know, so I'm bringing the shoes so that she loves me. She's got about sixty now, and so the the shoes. Um, it, makes me mean something to her. And if Phil shuts his division down, I'm ashamed to say I, I'd still buy the shoes, even if I meant giving Phil money and we make them in Taiwan. But I don't want to do that. I just want Avery to love me, and I want my job. And I think that you may have been a little bit cavalier about the risks, you know, about taking us all with you. I mean, if we're going to make it, we got to take risks. Spoken like a man without a seven-year-old on Sunday afternoon. I mean, he's so he's so right, right? I mean, this sob story he's telling him about, I barely get to see my daughter. I'm able to swoon her with these cool pairs of Nikes, but you're playing fast and loose with house money here, and there's a lot on the line that I don't think you understand because you don't have that investment personally. It's a great scene. I don't think we've ever done a film with Jason Bateman in it. Uh, uh, but you and I off mic have always spoken the praises of this guy from Arrested Development to Ozark to his little things and bad words and horrible bosses. I mean, this guy's always great, right? Yeah, he is. 
what do you think of that? What do you think? That's kind of kind of a pivotal moment, I think, for Sonny at least of like, oh wow, I really need to seal this deal. Then, right? No screw ups. It, it's loaded, Jesse. Because let me let me give you this. I want you to think about where you were when, as a Laker fan, I'll, I'll go back to one of your deals when Duncan and the Spurs take down the Lakers or are about to take down the Lakers in game six after Duncan banks one in off the elbow to put the Spurs up by one in like game six in San Antonio. Yeah. You guys get the ball back with 0.4 seconds to go in the game. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You probably even have the t-shirt. Where were you that night? When Derek Fisher hit that fucking prayer to beat the Spurs, where were you? I was in my living room with my with my dad and my mom. We were watching. I was just I was like glued to the set, already thinking this game's toast. Right, it's over. Do you remember like what you guys had for dinner that night? Do you remember like I bet you I bet this rhetorical question. I bet you remember that night very very clearly. I remember the night, and then in particular, I don't even remember like the food and like what the like the the aftermath. But I remember the next day at school, I was in I think it was like in sixth or seventh grade, mm-hmm. and just going to the kids and be like, "Did you guys see the game last? Did you watch like how that game ended?" And like it was like you know pre social media, so I couldn't give my instant react online. I had to wait till the next morning to say like, "Did you guys see like a point four second shot? I'd never seen something like that before." But okay. so, well, this is going commercial. Let me do one more. Go Maybe ahead. you're go ahead. You're probably old enough to remember this. Okay. So go back to like that rivalry, Lakers Sacramento. Remember when Robert Horry, Robert Horry, yeah, hit that three. Yep. Buried Sacramento in that game when you guys were down by like twenty in the fourth quarter or some crazy thing, and Shaq went nuts and yeah. Horry hit that three. To, do you want to you know that one? Do you want to know where I was? Yeah, Actually, we were coming back from out of town, and we were listening to that game on the radio. And you blew the car up, roof off the car. I bet. Well, all you heard was just like, you know, you're listening to the color commentators try to explain what the hell's happening and you're trying to visualize it. And then you just hear like madness and you're like, well, what the hell? So then we pull into my grandma's house like three minutes later and like instantly run to the television going like what just happened? And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those last second things are they stick with you. Okay, so the point I'm making in this is what Jason Bateman is alluding to in that anecdotal story about his daughter. There are moments in sports with regardless of you being on the scale of 1 to 10, a 50 fan or a a 1 fan, that when things happen, you'll never forget where they are and where you were. And this story that Bateman is telling Damon, what he's taking is, and how he is building picture book, novel, mm, yeah, of memories from these Sunday afternoons, and the relevant importance of the sporting relevant importance of the sporting event that marks those chapters. Every Sunday, I give my daughter a pair of shoes. She's got like sixty pairs now. It's not even really about the shoes. Yeah. It's something that we share together. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not so much sitting in front of the TV and watching Point Four Derek Fisher or Robert Ory yeah. or the, Mir- the, the Memorial Day Miracle, Sean Elliott versus the Portland Trailblazers in 99. It, like, we all have those. Miracle on Ice. Yeah. 
someday maybe the Chargers will give me one of those. I doubt it. We'll see. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> you know I you know I you know I feel for you. Michael Jordan did that for a lot of people, regardless of what team you follow, Jesse. Yeah, that's powerful. In this particular case, yeah, Jason Bateman's relationship and the cavalier approach that Sonny Vaccaro, Sonny Vaccaro is taking are what he's building this relationship on. And it gets to, it's like, as powerful as this story is about these shoes, it's really just a metaphor for what he did. Mm-hmm. He being MJ. Yeah. You heard he said, if this goes south, we're going to have these shoes made in Taiwan because this has become our thing now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to let it go. And for a long time, Michael Jordan became a thing for advertising, for television, for Christmas Day basketball. Yeah. For stories, for discussions, mm-hmm. for artistry. I mean, they, yeah, it, it's, it's another example of how sometimes on occasion yeah. we have monumental figures that transcend what the event was mm-hmm. and get interwoven into the inner network of our lives. Yeah. And it's a great example of it here. Yeah. I think so this, yes, I love that. That's a really long example of, I love it. Yeah. I think this film does that very, really well. And yeah, when I sat down to watch the nine part last dance documentary, I think that really hammered it home of like, this was kind of bigger than even my little snapshot that I saw from 96, 95 to like 99. Right. This was a cultural zeitgeist moment that, I mean, you don't even have to probably be a sports fan. You could probably hate watching all sports. You're probably tuning in at some point to watch Michael Jordan play a game. Yeah. Um, so we're here at the moment, right? Uh, the Jordans are coming to visit Nike. We got our, you know, our, I thought this was funny. The Their sad little Nike team welcomes the Jordan family, this little paper banner that they put up here. And it kind of looks like it's going south almost instantly. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about Chris Tucker in this film, but I think he's pretty good in this as kind of this other guy, you know, working in this like uh, Nike liaison. And he starts talking to the Jordan family and he's talking about some crazy stuff. And I'm like, oh man, you're going to turn off this. They're going to turn off the mom instantly. And then Phil Knight barges in late to the meeting saying, oh, I'm so important in this, that. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I like, I maybe I should have been here when the meeting started. Uh, God forbid Phil Knight missed the Michael Jordan meeting, right? Right. And then they have a video presentation put on by Bateman because he's like the marketing guy, and it doesn't look like it's going well. I mean, they show a good from behind this shot of Michael just kind of like hand in his head going like, oh, gosh, like I don't need to see this. Like I've done that. What's the point? And then we get the, and then so Sonny, Matt Damon, uh, says, stop the, stop the video. And then he goes into this speech and it's, this is the moment, right? I mean, this is the final pitch. If we're going to get Michael Jordan on team Nike, we got to do it this way. And I do have some audio for this. But you know what? Once they've built you as high as they possibly can, they're going to tear you back down. It's the most predictable pattern. We build you into something that doesn't exist, and that means you have to try to be that thing. All day, every day. That's how it works. And we do it again, and again, and again. And I'm gonna tell you the truth. 
you're gonna be attacked, betrayed, exposed, and humiliated. And you'll survive that. A lot of people can climb that mountain. It's the way down that breaks them. Because that's the moment when you are truly alone. And what will you do then? Can you summon the will to fight on through all the pain and rise again? Who are you, Michael? That will be the defining question of your life. And I think you already know the answer. And that's why we're all here. A shoe is just a shoe. Until somebody steps into it, then it has meaning. The rest of us just want a chance to touch that greatness. And we need you in these shoes, not so you have meaning in your life, but so that we have meaning in ours. Everyone at this table will be forgotten as soon as our time here is up. Except for you. You're gonna be remembered forever because some things are eternal. You're Michael Jordan and your story is gonna make us want to fly. That's the pitch. That's the pitch. It's the last moment. This is our last chance to snag the family, but not only Michael's interest, uh, sway him from Adidas. There we go. How do you, how do you think he did, Matt? Uh, absolutely profound. I mean, his revisionist history is easy to recite and get right, but isn't that also the story? Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that exactly what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Per- pretty good. Excellent. Damon's yep. really great here. And so, you know, the meeting ends, the family leaves, they say, we'll let you know about our decision. Uh, and then Phil Knight and <clears throat> Bateman and Chris Tucker, they're like, oh my God, where did that come from? <laughs> they're like astounded mm-hmm. by <laughs> this speech he gave. Uh, and then now begins the waiting game. It's just like waiting for a call. When is they going to contact us? And this is what I really like about the film. And the first film that I could think of that I thought did this really well, just off the top of my head, was you know how this story ends. We know that Air Jordans were made into a shoe and we've been wearing them for the better part of 30 years. We know where this is going, but yet there's so much suspense in how we're going to get there. Yeah, And I can can only equate that to the first time I I really felt that was when I saw Zero Dark Thirty. And I was like, I know this film's going to end with them killing Bin Laden. But it's in the execution of how you're seeing it go about, right? It, you're on the edge of your seat, just like, I, I know how it's going to happen, but I don't know how it's going to happen. And I think there's something pretty powerful there for writing and filmmaking when it comes to true life stories or when you know the out, end outcome, right? It's different than a prequel, being that we lived it. Uh, these are things that we know through history, but... I think that's hard to do. I don't think that's an easy feat. And a handful of films, I think, have accomplished that feat. Yeah, Jesse, that's, um, I mean, we, yeah, like you know where this goes. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, my, they, they did make a line of shoes? <laughs> of course, yeah, right? Yeah. How do you get there? And that's, again, really well written and really well handled directorially and creatively because how do you create a shred of doubt in the viewer's mind when they already know what happened and give them credit where it's due. Yeah. Bam, it's, do. it's kind of like a reverse Hitchcock. It's like, it's like going into the film, knowing the bomb goes up, but then like kind of learning how it gets placed under the table. Right. Exactly. That's, that's really well said. Yeah. Yeah. 
And yep. so a couple days later, he gets a call, uh, Sonny, from mom, Viola Davis, uh, Dolores Jordan. And she goes, hey, we're going to go with you. Uh, we agreed to the 250K, the Mercedes you promised him. And then he, she comes in with this swooping in at the 11th hour and mm-hmm. a percentage of all profits from the shoes yet to be negotiated. And Sonny's like, wait a minute, what? And, well, what? and yeah. it looks like it's going to throw the entire deal off being that like, Hey, this isn't how it works. Players don't negotiate the deals. It's a set rate. Um, they get paid annually or whatever the hell, uh, we can't give them a profit share of what we make here. That's just not how the shoe industry works. And you know, she gives it to him again. Like, so here's my, my Jordan's pitch to him is like, if everything yeah. you said is true, and if you believe the same way I believe about what he's going to do, then we need to make this deal. And I need to look out for my son and his best interests. Uh, and it's going to change the game. It's going to change how things are done. And for the first freaking time in this film, Phil Knight is like, go for it. Right? Yeah. Now money's not an issue. I mean, we're this close to signing on the dotted line. It's just like, yeah, we're paying his fines. Yeah, now we have to give him a percentage. But if it's going to be worth it in the end, and oh boy, is it going to be worth it? Yeah, go make the deal, Sonny. Good decision, Phil. Yeah. Yeah, good decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Put your track suit on. Go, go, go jog a lap. Good decision, Phil. And yeah, and I think the rest is history. Uh, we get this kind of great line where Matt Damon gets to go onto the floor and go like, we just signed Michael Jordan. Everyone freaks out and celebrating yeah. and everyone's embracing. And then we get a bunch of title cards on like, you know, where everyone ended up, Phil Knight and Sonny, um, the Jordans, Michael Jordan. Or Did any of those, you know, because, you know, True story. That almost seems like the norm, right? We got to end with the title card of like where these people mm-hmm. ended up, <laughs> which I kind of yeah. don't need at the end of the day. But it's I guess it's nice because you know it, it saves me from going to do the research. Um, did, <laughs> yeah. did any of those jump out at you as surprising, or whether it's the numbers of the shoes or any factoids in there? The shoe designer one was the one that kind of made me feel a little bit sad. Mm. Didn't he die like two months before the movie was released or something like that? Oh, before they started shooting, I think. Yeah. 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 But that guy doesn't get enough credit, Jesse. Oh, I mean, integral integral part in the film too. Yeah, he designed he, he the, the the Jordan silhouette, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cool. And I didn't know the part about Sonny Vaccaro being kind of involved with you know the the college athlete thing and the image and likeness and them being compensated, which is, you know, kind of a crazy thing going on right now, but I didn't know he was like at the forefront of that. Yeah. That name image likeness stuff's a big deal right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. a battle that's been going on with the, even though, you know, Charles, Charles O'Bannon started that or Ed O'Bannon started that 15, 20 years ago, but yeah, yeah that's long overdue too. Here's, here's one final thought on this. When Nike chooses to take on this endeavor, which is a basketball division, yeah, I think one of the things that we tend to forget is they didn't need it. They were already a multi-billion dollar company because they had the best running shoes on the planet, yeah, and they had just come up with a brand new design, this Air, the, like the Air Pocket Soul. Yeah. 
It provided better cushion. It was sturdier, yada, 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 yada. This is almost just a lark. Yeah. We dominate the running industry. We, it, it, we, yeah, we have basketball shoes, I guess, but we don't need it. We have running industry. And if you think about the expanse of running shoes compared, like runners compared to basketball players. Yeah. There's way more runners than there are basketball players. Mm-hmm. And if you take to whatever basketball players that are needing basketball shoes and you're going to choose Adidas or Converse second, and then you're going to Nike, and then there's this other upstart coming along named Reebok. Eh, why do we even care about that? Like this yeah. was so close to never happening because, you know, Phil Knight's a prick on top of it. Yeah. Not only should he not care, and economically rightfully so, he's also a dick. Yeah. And, like, here comes this guy trying to tell him how to run his business, and all Phil Knight wants to do is show everybody how important he is. Yeah. But I don't think it's too far of a stretch from how Phil Knight probably really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, well, yeah. Why bother? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Why, 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 why are we even wasting time with this shit? Let's just keep making running shoes. We're doing really good here. Who cares? Yeah, why go all in here on this endeavor? But it's going to become a thing, right? It's going to have its moment. Yeah. It's going to become this cultural phenomenon. It's it's wild. And some of these guys... I'm run- also part of this film, too, that there wasn't ever a time where maybe Adidas or some other company didn't try to take Vaccaro away from Nike. Yeah, steal him away. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Unless he was maybe such a wild card. They, you know, they, he was in persona non grata, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. The title, or the little anecdote at the end that I thought was interesting, whether this was Ben Affleck's decision or the writer's decision, but they just straight, ahead, straight up ahead and go and say, Michael Jordan went on to become the greatest basketball player of all time. Just like no frills, just like well, I'm putting that out there, right? Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Uh, and yeah, that's the film. Um, I have a couple questions for you here in a second. Uh, there is one thing we need to talk about, and if I can fault the film for anything, because um, we've done it before on this show, uh, the songs that they use in here... Well, good. I love REO Speedwagon. I like some of these bands, like the Daz band that that, that they're using. <laughs> but there's a yeah. moment in the film, and I think it's in like the middle section where we're trying to figure out how the heck are we going to make this shoe and get Jordan to come take a meeting. Every scene ends and transitions into the next scene with another song. Mm. I think there's like 35, 40 songs in this film, and they're all kind of like surface level, like 80s hits, good songs, mm. but... Matt, it really reminded me of Suicide Squad and like how like we're ending every one of those like character introductions with uh uh House of the Rising Sun and then into Eminem and then into this and I'm like, what are we this is crazy? No, actually I didn't pick up on that, but um yeah, that would that's annoying. And I don't want to say distracting, it just felt unnecessary. Like I could have done with a film that had none of that music in there and just kind of like a great, like kind of like ominous like synth score, like maybe something like 80 synth heavy. Mm-hmm. I think could have been pretty fun and maybe would have added a level of more seriousness into the, the conflict of the story. But there, yeah. some of their choices I thought were interesting. So Matt, you're going to love this because my ears are just tuned to music. When there was a scene when Phil and Sonny are talking and I was like, what is that song in the background? I know I have heard that before. And then it happened again when they unveil the air Jordan for the first time, 
there's this little ditty that plays. I'm going to play it, and then I'm going to tell you what it's from. Okay. We'll just call it the unveiling of the Air Jordan, and it's this kind of like synthy with this this vocals in the background. Matt, this is from the film Body Double. This is when Craig Wasson is telescoping the woman across the way doing her dance in the other house. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, we're taking songs from Body Double, and then towards the end, there's another bit from Tangerine Dream that was used in the film. I, you're not going to believe these words are going to come out of my mouth from the film three o'clock high. Have you seen that? Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I was just sitting there. I'm like, this is a wild soundtrack. We're taking like top 40 hits, but then we're throwing body double and three o'clock high soundtracks in there too. I was like, how come we didn't just hire a guy? Yeah. What are we doing here? Exactly. And then when I looked at the budget of the film, I got a few different numbers from 70 to 90 million, which seems a bit high for the type of film, right? Yep. And I wonder, I was like, did they really spend a lot of this money on music for a little 20-second piece? Mm. Anyway. That's interesting. Anyway, cool. yeah, I'll get I'll get off the music soapbox. That was my one takeaway, you know, kind of sort of negative observation with the film. But before we wrap up, uh, I want to know, what's your favorite tasting note of Air? I think it might be that sound that you played at the beginning, which is them forecasting the futures of these <laughs> journeyman NBA players, yeah. except for Barkley and Stockton, and how all those guys were in play. Mel Turpin just makes me laugh. Like, yeah, yeah. Shoot, just such a bust. It, it, it took me back to a time when I remember TNT, or maybe it was TBS, and countless hours of watching draft and draft coverage and, and listening to QB Brown and Bill Russell, I really, really did take me back to a time when the NBA was yeah. um, far less entertaining than it is today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in, some way, in some ways. Yeah. Uh, mine's going to be that other audio bit that I played uh, between Bateman and Sonny Vaccaro. Of like, yeah, spoken like a guy that doesn't get to see his daughter for four hours on a Sunday. I just That, that was powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really laid down the underlying conflict of the film. Yeah, it's a shoe battle, and we're trying to jockey for position of our what athlete's going to be the face of the brand. But there's more at stake here than just something like that. And I thought that was really well done. Yeah, I agree. What's the oh my God! moment of air where you need to take another swig of K-Cup, and I'll have some more cask finish over here. I think it's watching that terrible presentation unfold when they get the Jordans in the building. Oh my God. Yes. That's mine too. Cause there's no sound on it, but Chris Tucker trying to be like, Hey, look, we're all black. Like that whole shtick that they tried to lay was so heavy handed and completely insincere and they could tell. And I thought the movie really did a good job of making the Jordans go like, the fuck is this shit that we're in the middle of even yeah. though none of them would ever say that you double down um, on that and then you have phil knight barging in probably shoeless uh yeah. into this meeting and you're just like what type of ham-fisted presentation it is and if it isn't for sonny's oscar-winning speech yeah, yeah. he's probably going to adidas <laughs> the, yeah the, i mean even jason bateman who i think shows that he's pretty savvy and talented with what his marketing piece on this is even and he's not trying to do anything other than just present the the product. 
even his kind of goes up in flames. You just sort of get like, man, Nike is in way, way, way over their head right now. Yeah. Yeah. And you can feel it the way Jordan puts his head down and the way mama is kind of like looking at him and you can feel it. It's getting away from them by the second. Yeah. Yeah. When mom sees, well, if my son's not feeling it, this isn't a good situation. He's not happy. Uh, Who's the master distiller on air? Man, is it Ben Affleck? I think it might be. (laughs) I think I might give it to Ben Affleck. Mm. I don't think we've said that before on this podcast, but I'll let let you have it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go Matt Damon. Uh, Watching this film really made me kind of think of his whole just tenure as an actor and the times I really like him, particularly in the Bourne franchise, not that fifth one, but the uh, original trilogy. Uh, mm-hmm. the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, and when he really shows up, I mean, he's, he's a good presence. Uh, he can do a lot of his school ties. Oh my God. Uh, but he's really good in this film rocking like the full dad bod, like <laughs> just doesn't care. And I love that little scene at the end. Uh, it'll be the tag at the end of this episode when he puts on the pair of Nike running shoes for the first time and he's going to run. And he's like, Oh no, fuck this. <laughs> Fuck this. Yeah, Fuck this. I'm not doing who who cares about running, which you know, I kind of agree with him a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a, a lot of it. A lot of it, yeah. He's just yeah. like walks off. I thought that was a cool comedic moment, but it's a great performance. I mean, the film's on his shoulders and he's he's got his moments to shine. Yeah, he sure does. And I think it's cool to see Ben and uh Matt kind of do a collaboration like this. Uh I I'll have to look at the filmography, but maybe not since Goodwill Hunting are we seeing something like this. Uh, yeah, no, it's been, it's been a while. It's been a little while. How are you in a rate and grade air? We have rocket, well, call single barrel and top shelf. I'm reminded that this Basil Hayden, a red wine, which is almost about finished. Uh, this is pretty good. Yeah. It's sweet, uh, a little smoky, but, uh, very drinkable. Again, just speak, speaking the praises of that particular label. Uh, what's your, yeah. What's your rating this week? Top shelf. I loved this film, and I was very lukewarm on wanting to see this because I lived through it. I said, "I, I can't imagine that this this shoe story is going to be that big a deal." It was a big deal back when it happened, but I don't want to know the behind the music version of this. And lo and behold, uh, this is one of the more surprising recent film viewings I've been through. Uh, this was we got a couple hours throwaway kind of minute. Let's mm-hmm. check it out. Um, I was very very happy with this film it was handled really really well every performance is fantastic Mm -hmm. again if you think about that sound that you played with the speech that they're just shoes until somebody puts them on yeah out of context that sort of sounds like kind of hokey and just sort of stupid bullshit yeah and it kind of is in a way because it's actually totally unimportant (laughs) yeah except that's part of the mastery of this. Something that's as unimportant as that is. Who cares what shoes you have on yeah. unless it defines a generation and somehow it did. And they made a really, really good story about it without an active antagonist. I mean, I guess you could kind of say Phil Knight a little bit. Yeah. The active antagonist is passive because it's just circumstantial, right? Yeah. How, how would that be in that video I showed you? Remember there was like invisible protagonists or like inanimate yeah. protagonists or antagonists? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. 
Yeah, and anti-villain or something. Yeah, just crazy. Yeah, it's just there's not like that opposable force that stands other way other than a decision. And it's not even like as, as much as Vaccaro, you know, has his own issues. They don't even make him have to overcome his own situational inequities. Yeah. Like he's completely competent. That's what I'll, there, there's no way on paper this should have worked. Yeah. But it, or for me, it shouldn't have worked, but mm-hmm. boy, does it. Well, I remember too. I mean, you know, when the trailers came out earlier in the year, I was like, Hey, you want to go, you want to see that air? And you're like, I want no part of that movie. Yeah. And then, yeah, wait till it hits the streaming. And then, yeah, like you said, just burn it on like a Thursday night. Be like, Hey, that was actually not bad. Uh, yeah. That happens from time to time where you just kind of just, we both kind of just dismiss something. And we're like, yeah, I'll wait. Maybe I'll catch it if I'm bored one night. And then it's just like, wow, I kind of maybe screwed up by not going to go check that out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's prisoners. I mean, that's my prisoner's mistake, right? <laughs> exactly. Prisoners. Yep. Um, yep. no, this is a uh, single barrel easy for me. I had a great time watching this. This was a great recommendation, Matt. Uh, I just love stories set in this space. I'm a sucker for a sports film. Um, but this is a sports film without like kind of like sports in it. I mean, it's just, it's board meetings, it's pitches, it's decision making, yeah. it's shoemaking, it's taking a shit in a stall. Uh, yeah. And they're able to get meaningful uh, conflict out of these scenarios with good characterization, great performances, good writing. And yeah, you're right. Good direction for Mr. Ben Affleck. Uh, yeah, really watchable. If you're a fan of films like Moneyball and The Big Short specifically, you got to check this film out. I think you'll really like it. Right. Uh, let's, give, let's give a nod also to the writer. Yeah. Because as of this viewing, relatively unheard of and completely unknown to you and I. Yeah. And spec. And this is spec. It's not adapted. It's spec. Yeah. Let's give them that. I think it had ended up on, uh, well, you've heard of this, uh, the blacklist, right? Yeah. Which was like, here's something we like, but uh, we kind of don't know what to do with it. Right. Right. Yeah. So this was one of those screenplays, but yeah, a uh, spec not based on a book. We're kind of just taking like the shred of an idea and really filling it in with probably like spec dialogue and situations. Right. Um, pretty well done. Yeah. Very, really well done. Uh, yeah. Check this out. It's on Amazon prime right now. Uh, it's a good way to spend two hours and we'll I see. One more thing before, before we, we head out to the, the, the end on this. Yeah. This is something I, I think that we need to pay attention to going forward. And although we gave not a ton of discussion, but I think it was your, your favorite movie, favorite moments in the film. Yeah. It's about time to start really raising an eyebrow and questioning why isn't Jason Bateman being recognized in a more meaningful way than what he is. Yeah. It's it almost feels kind of cultish, right? I, I don't want to say like the film scene, they're not like what I would d- define as like a cult film, like Eraserhead or like pink flamingos, but he's kind of like an under the radar, like very solid, like, Ozark's a great show, but it's not like yeah. pulling in like Stranger Things numbers, right? It's still kind of under the radar, I think, for a lot of people. Um, I'm what with was you. the one um, Arrested Development? Yeah, yeah. very, very cult- cultish, like there too. Yep, yeah. It's just it's a it's a particular talent that when it's on display, it's really good. There's a film of his that I would love to do on the show because I know it's a film that a lot of people didn't see when it came out, and I thought it was excellent, which was The Gift. Yeah, it was a great film. With him it. and yeah. uh, Rebecca Hall and Joel Edgerton. Yep. Very, yep. very Hitchcock. Uh, he's terrific in that movie, but 
yeah, it's just like, yeah, it, his films are just kind of under the radar or they're just kind of like schlock comedies, which I have a space for in my uh, vocabulary. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. I mean, think about the two spaces that he's really succeeding in. If you want to go bad words, like that indie drama, Ozark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then schlocky comedy, mm-hmm. Game Night, um, oh, Horrible Boss. Game Night's so good. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. 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 I don't know, Jesse. I'm just throwing it out there. I hey. think after watching this and seeing him play marketing guru guy, yeah, I'm really starting to question what's it going to be that's going to take him from whatever level it is now. And it's it's notable for sure. Yeah. To headlining performance guy. Yeah. Hey, we at least appreciate it. Can it. For Cillian Murphy, it can happen for him. Oh yeah, yeah. Just the right project at the right time. Yep. Mr. Ben Affleck, we'll see you in a couple weeks with your return as the caped crusader in The Flash. And Mr. Matt Damon, we'll see you later with your turn in Oppenheimer. We're looking forward to both of those. But in the in-between, we got another big film coming out this week. We're giving people a week to go check it out so we can avoid spoilers because we go in heavy-handed each week. Uh, Next week, we're heading to the animated world and the world of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Uh, this was a film that I remember in episode one of this show, when we did Unbreakable, our question was, what was a film that disappointed you the most, uh, in 2018, I believe, and a film that surprised you. My disappointed film that year was Solo, a Star Wars story, and the film that knocked my socks off and really surprised me and exceeded all expectations was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, so I'm looking forward to seeing this one, um... And they're bringing in spider characters that I never thought would ever see the light of day, like Miguel O'Hara and the Scarlet Spider and Spider-Woman. And if they can tell me a coherent, you know, grounded story and have some fun with it, hey, I'm on board. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, We certainly are fans of that style of art, which Mm -hmm. is going to be a big, big, big role in this. Yeah. So, yeah, we're getting... A different Spider-Man as the lead, so we'll see how Miles is able to do in that in that role. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll have that coming to you next week, and then we'll unveil the cask at hand, the summer box office hall of what? And, uh, we got some great lineups in there that'll propel us through the rest of the summer. But I'm cheersing to you, Matt, from a distance. Cheers. Cheers. I got to get going. I'm going to go fish my Rodmans out of storage. Uh, Maybe they might fetch me a pretty penny on eBay. Well, I would like to tell you that I'm on NBA.com for my Victor Wimbanyana, New Jersey, but we haven't, not New Jersey as in state, but New Jersey as in brand new. We haven't officially had the NBA draft, so I'm waiting with state address to see how long it's going to take me to press buy on that one. I yeah. bought an NBA jersey in a long time, but I'm on board now. I'm yeah. Go in, Jesse. There you Let's go. Do this. Awesome, awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Air is property of Amazon Studios, Skydance Sports, Artist Equity, 
and Mandalay Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Just fucking awful. Just terrible.